When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Michael Walker. How are you doing? Hello. Happy, or at least somber, Truth and Reconciliation Day, as observed today in Canada. It is a provincial holiday in some provinces, but not in Ontario. That is why we are hard at work, despite the celebrity of the occasion. I never know how to acknowledge such holidays, because you don't want to say happy. It's not really a happy holiday. Apparently, there was some services closed in Kingston today. Yes, uh, some people have, some companies have encouraged their workers to stay home, like Queen's canceled their classes, as an example. At any rate, this is a board gaming podcast about board games. We're going to talk about board games this week. We're going to talk about the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, the Eurus. We're going to talk about the games we played last week, the news, and why it doesn't matter. And then our topic, which is games for mixed company. This is games good for hobbyist gamers and non-hobbyist gamers. I'd like to think of it as the new generation of gateway games. So... Walker, what did we review last year? Exactly. It was an early October evening, Mark, when we sat and talked about Ankh, Gods of Egypt, by Eric Lang. Yeah, we made it the game of the year that year. We did. I regret it not a bit. We, you still have your giant copy? Well, it's gotten more giant. I acquired the massive Laser Ox all-in crate on the basis that I am willing to have one heavy monolith that will throw your back out rather than have have to transport around multiple boxes. And the plastic that they used holds detail very, very well and holds straight things like spears and staves very, very well. Uh, But as a consequence, the plastic is a little bit more fragile and I didn't want it to start snapping on a regular basis. As a consequence of having the Laser Ox organizer, uh, two things have changed in my life. Number one, I had hand pain for weeks. And number two, everyone now gets to either stare in befuddlement or just abandon me as I desperately try to get everything back in the box in the right order. Sort of like the the mystery box from Egypt. It's like the puzzle. <laughs> yeah, it's like, like decipher the tomb. If you yeah. put it in the wrong way, then mummies will start coming. It's, it's this whole thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which is all to say that I remain a massive fan of Ankh, Gods of Egypt. There are, of course, articles aplenty about how Strategy X is overpowered or God Y is underpowered. And I acknowledge the legitimacy of some of those observations, but quite, quite frankly, I don't really care. because Or the merge is not so great. Well, the merge has been consistently controversial. Yes. I remain a merge booster. I think it's at least interesting. I think it's just different, right? Yeah. 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 And as far as Eric Eric Lang's catalog goes, I think it and Cthulhu Death May Die are, are, are my two favorites. And I think they really stand out in terms of occupying well-trod ground. Some of that ground having been established, indeed, by Eric Lang previously <laughs> in like Chaos in the Old World. But nonetheless, elevating it and... 
taking it in new directions. And so I've played Ankh a bunch of times since reviewing it. It's never going to leave my collection. I'm glad it was game of the year. I stand by it. Marvelous game. That is Ankh Gods of Egypt by Eric Lang and Coolmany or not. And that was your Eurus, your as yet unnamed retrospective intro segment, Walker. We're not going to talk about the games we played last week. What did you play last week? Mark, we played My Island. This is Reiner Knizia's newest legacy-type tile placement game, except it uses the best of Gons, the Hexagon. <laughs> and this is put out by Cosmos, and it's sort of a flip and write in a way. You flip a card, and there's a card for every tile. Everyone has the same set of tiles. Well, same shapes. Yeah, same shapes. Same sort of uh, designation of spaces. Yeah, without going into spoilers, the tiles do change over the course of the game. And so you're placing the tiles on your map with a bunch of restrictions, and you're trying to get the best score. Do you have to place them with Restriction Walker, or can you just go rogue and do whatever you want? No, apparently, if you're me and you're tired, you just just do whatever you want. Yeah, yeah. Walker was just... And still lose. He, like, stuck him to his forehead. He put a couple in his pocket. He put some on the wall. It was very entertaining. So I had complained, well, complained. You had commented last time we talked about My Island that things were not being introduced at a sufficient rate and that you felt that things were getting a little stale and perhaps a little too repetitive for your taste. What do you think now? Uh, Pretty much. I was looking for something more. I don't know what it is, like a different type of building or something, but like we talked about after, it has opened up. I was waiting for it to do some of the things that I kind of was expecting from my city. So we, we, for those of you that don't remember, Walker and I devoured my city in a series of two-player sessions very early on in the pandemic. And I, so as, as a consequence, I had a vague notion of the contours of some of the things that were going to be developed. And effectively, what I was waiting for was for, without getting into details, my island to develop a set of placement restrictions and placement incentives such that I was constantly being pulled in a lot of different directions and I was engaged in trade-offs rather than a pure spatial puzzle. Because at the start of your campaign of My Island, pretty much you have, it is more or less a pure spatial puzzle in comparison to how it evolves. And the spatial puzzle aspects get de-incentivized and suddenly you're like, well... I could use this to cover this spot better. Alternatively, I could try to build towards this other thing, which might be worth more points, but is a little bit risky. It depends on what's going to be pulled in what order, etc., etc. As it develops more towards the latter contours, I am enjoying my island more and more, and I really think, therefore, in the last couple games, it really opened up because two new scoring conditions came out, one of which introduced a slight element of player interaction. Not a huge deal. Very, very minor, but better than nothing. Yeah, especially in this type of game. Precisely. And I, again, I, I kind of had the sense that some of the, these things were going to happen. One of my favorite rules and one of my favorite segments in my city, for example, I think the way that it works, the logic about spoilers is the same for games as it is for movies. If it's been a year or two, you can talk about things. I think so. Well, okay. Without getting into too much detail, there's, there's something that get introduced relatively early on in my, my city, whereby the first to connect two points on the map gets a Benny. And... It's not the most natural way to place pieces. So again, you're being pulled in different directions. Do I go towards this? It's a risk. Do I Can I get there before other people can? Or do I maximize these other scoring conditions? And as the scoring criteria mount, and we're still not talking about a great deal of complexity, my island becomes more of the kind of game that I like, which is to say it is manifesting itself in the same way that my city did, and I am having a great time, and I'm very much looking forward to the next chapter. So I'm sorry it's not uh, developing in the way you quite want it to. Uh. And maybe it will. Maybe there'll be some fancy, because there eventually got some fancy buildings in in my city. So maybe we'll get some fancy tiles 
So that's the specific thing you're holding out for. You yeah. want the, the the tiles to become different. Exactly. I'm just ha- I'm happy enough that they are being implicated in different scoring conditions. That is enough for me. And of course, the interesting thing about the way my city developed, and I assume my island will work the same way, is sometimes scoring conditions evolve. Sometimes they get removed altogether. Because for those of you that might fear that, like in a traditional campaign environment, it's just about lording on details where, for example, late in a campaign of of Gloomhaven or even something like Kingdom Death Monster especially, the amount of paperwork necessary to just follow what's going on starts to become very cumbersome. But as in my city, it never got past a certain threshold, and I imagine that my island will work the same way. At any rate... Probably more to follow, because despite Walker's lack of enthusiasm, I think he is now uh, signed up for the, the full ride. So, That's true. <laughs> unless and until other people start dis- displaying a degree of indifference, he's stuck. And that is My Island by Reiner Knizia. Walker showed me Three Ring Circus. This is by Remo Consadori and Fabio Lupiano, published by Dever Games. And uh, very much like some of Dever's other publications, it is in a delightfully small box in that it is much smaller than many other games of its weight would indicate. And Three Ring Circus is somewhat of a departure, as I uh, questioned Walker in previous weeks from Fabio Lopiano's Other Earth. The, the action selection is not particularly interesting. What is replaced, what, what, what it does have, however, is a fascinating spin on tableau building, because roughly half the game is building your tableau, and then there's the question of, moving around the map, leveraging that tableau in specific purposes because you have to build your tableau for to spec in some specific uh, performances. So if you're in some kind of uh, two-bit town like Worcester, I used to work in Worcester, actually, they'll, they'll be happy with whatever you got. Any old juggler, elephant, or llama will do. But if you want to take that show to New York or Boston, whew, you better have the specific thing they want. And, I mean, very specific. Not even just a relative level of quality, but a specific kind of performance. They're very jaded in those big cities, Walker. I have to imagine that's what it is. They want the weightlifter that lifts the seal, not <laughs> lifts the donkey. <laughs> what about the seal that lifts the weightlifter? No. No? No good? Okay. And I appreciate the fact, and I actually commented about, uh, about this about halfway through the game, I realized that many games would have just stopped at the tableau building and grafted on an unsatisfying scoring mechanism there. But... There's area majority, and there's competition first two. There's a trade-off between trying to get really, really good performances for points and trying to get early performances just for more resources so you can bootstrap a little bit. And on top of this, there's also this uncertain timing element because based on the actions of the players involved, the major scoring thresholds for area majority will happen at irregular intervals. And altogether, what you have is, I think, a a very, very good medium-weight Euro game, and I was very pleased. It felt a little bit different from a lot of the other tableau-building games that I've played or the ones that have tableau-building as kind of an afterthought or just a, a way to organize things. And I appreciated the way that you had to juggle all these timing considerations. I, I would much rather have a timing consideration based on the uh, the impulses of other players than I would have to just manage some sort of arbitrary hand limit or arbitrary stack limit or what have you. And I think that Three Ring Circus does a very good job of integrating those elements of the tableau and everything else. And on top of giving you a nice bit of freedom and constraint, like building your tableau, I, I think, is just the right level of difficult. Eventually, it becomes trivial at some points, but then you have to start a new line. Anyway, there's a number of interesting things going on. I quite enjoyed Three Ring Circus. Yeah, I was really happy to get new players because I could see different strategies come out. Like, it was played almost completely differently than it was the first time. So, What happened the first time? Well, I mean, uh, just the height of the podiums in our game, right? It was like 
you know, I quickly saw what was happening. I said, oh, I'll, you know, I'll try to equal that. Never got to quite the height of your podium, but the fact that you're just hitting those cities for big points as opposed to in our game where we're almost always hitting them for... Uh, more cards as opposed to points. Interesting, yeah. Well, there are three different kinds of performances you can do. There are the small cities, they'll they'll take anything. There are the medium-sized cities, which you can use early on to bootstrap, or you can use for points, but generally speaking, you use them for points later on. And they care about an abstract representation of the quality of your overall act, which is built by certain kinds of cards. And then, as I said previously, there are the major cities that want a very specific set of criteria. And the very specific set of criteria... Uh, just didn't manifest for me and Chip the Third effectively. We just didn't have those setups, so we were happily hitting those medium cities because uh, we had maxed out the other criterion. Now, in fairness, this wasn't any sort of brilliant insight on on my part. It's just because the end game scoring card that I got told me to increase that track, and so I did. It's not really well. It's not really much of a track. It's not a very tracky track. It's just a, a, a sum of of a certain kind of resource that you've accumulated. Anyway, I really enjoyed it. Uh, Fabio Lopiano has really been consistent over the course of the past few years, and I remain very impressed. I, I'm not familiar with any other work of his co-designer in this instance, Remo Consadori, but I quite enjoyed Three Ring Circus. Yeah, because not only are you building your tableau, you're also destroying parts of it because you start the game with a with the movement on your tableau and certain uh, levels of tab of uh, podium and money, and then you need to cover those to get other benefits. So you sort of have to time it out when you want to cover those, and hopefully you get other symbols to replace them. You start as a lean operation, just you and a trapeze artist. Then the llama starts showing up, and then there's the seal and the aforementioned weightlifter, and it's a whole thing. Yeah, I'm so glad that they didn't bog like bog it down with handcuffs because I can see where yeah. the handcuffs could be. Right? It's like, oh, you can only use certain rows for you know, yeah. But you can use your whole board unless you know the card specifies you know, you know it needs to be in this particular row, which is only for the big cities. You have to have cards in a particular row, or the fact that it just lets you slide the cards where they need to go. And right? It doesn't like give you some arbitrary cost to do that. Yeah, and similarly, the highest cost cards, although very difficult to play at the early game, very quickly by the mid-game become, if you just want them to hit your tableau, become borderline trivial to, to put out. The key issue is tempo, and again, the tempo is driven by the other players, and I'd much rather have your key resources be your time in terms of a given turn than be like, well, you know, I need to get the crystal, the three ducks, and a uh, pontoon in order to be able to play this card. It's like, okay, well, I guess I better go fulfill this recipe. And I, I really appreciated that that element. Like near, it was again by the mid game. I was like, well, I've got all the money I need, but the the bigger problem is time. It, it, it playing. I don't know if I want to play this card or just pump out more in uh, uh, bad performances. And I could really just react to the way that other people are playing in terms of my decisions. And so yeah, I appreciated it. That is Three Ring Circus by Remo Consadori and Fabio Lopiano, published by Devere Games. So I got Uprising, Curse of the Last Emperor, back to the table. This is because the the game-found project of Titans of the First Age expansion finally came in. And so now, what is Curse of the Last Emperor? It is ten armies, each with two leaders. And so when you pick an army, you choose which of the two leaders you're going to get. So there's 20 different starts you can get to the game. This is on top of all the different random cards you're going to get, different opponents, different uh, events, every chapter. You are trying to 
minimize the damage to your homeland while chaos tries to fight towards the imperial center and the imperial center tries to fight its way out you can sort of manipulate the puzzle and have them attack each other weaken them and then come in for the kill or try to protect your settlements if they're going to take it out they added a bunch of stuff they're nice enough to send me a blessings deck which sort of you know gives you some benefits and the other things that the the titan the first age bring in are these new druid cards there's old druid cards that give you benefits these ones let you finally re-roll some dice so it sort of breaks up those awful rolls sometimes and very interesting sort of triggers that get you those gems back so in all still loving curse of the last emperor lots to choose from lots of interesting things this is published by nemesis games designed by cornelius kremen powell mauser and dirk summer so to set up a contrast you have uprising curse of the last emperor which is moderate to rules heavy you set things up, there's a whole bunch of very, very good-looking standees. I love those standees. They're very much the sort of aesthetic and the materials that I enjoy. And then you do all these things, and then you just do a roll and figure out whether or not you've lost on turn one. Similarly, similarly, oh, sure, that's what you say. Similarly, there's Sky Team. We've played a bunch of games of Sky Team this week. Sky Team gives me the exact same vibes as Uprising, except Sky Team gets to get away with it because it's, what, a 20 to 30 minute game, maybe? Probably less. Probably less, especially if you crash. Especially if you spin out and, 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 and kill yes. all your passengers, yes. So I'm not sure. Sky Team is, is strange. I'm not sure how much decision making there is. You've, you've had the same sort of how much communication, how much decision, because you're not allowed to talk once you've seen what the dice are. It's a co- two player cooperative dice game about trying to land a plane. I do appreciate the fact that the intro scenario tries to have you land at Pierre Hélé Trudeau, Montreal, yes. in, uh, uh, so. airport in Montreal, which is kind of cool. I'm, 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 it's by uh, Le Scorpion Masqué, so that's probably why. And so, you know, I'm, I'm vulnerable to a little bit of a hometown shout-out. But it... So one of the... L- let me just focus on one of the things you have to do. So you get... Well, first of all, you get four dice every round, and two dice placements are obliged. So effectively half of your dice are already spoken for. One of them is the overall pitch and yaw of your plane or orientation. And so you, you have to decide whether, you know, player one plays a four to the right and player two plays a three to the left. So as a consequence, the dot, the, the plane is pitched one to the right and you carry that forward going, going future. So if you have, as what happened in our first round... <laughs> Uh, Mark only rolled sixes. True story. Only rolled sixes. Mm-hmm. Walker, after using the reroll token, the one reroll token we had, could not get a die high enough to prevent us from spinning out of control. Okay, game over. Now, I grant you that that is an unusual situation of forced play, but there's a lot of forced play built in to Sky Team. I'm perfect. So we've been playing a board game arena, and I'm perfectly willing to play it, and it, it's kind of engaging. And enjoyable. I, I just, I literally don't know how much there is there. I think I need to play it more to figure it out. Yeah, but the, the airports that you can add make it super awesome. So I've been playing with Sam a lot from the podcast Board Game Duel, and we've got to, like, the advanced mission where there's mountains that come. So you have to. I like, thought you'd never won. Why are you going to the advanced mission? No, we won. No, we did. We won the we won the basic one that we did, and then okay. and then we did the second, the mid, and then we finished the hard today, and we succeeded. Oh, in the I hard thought today. I thought I thought I'd given you your first victory. Oh, oh I'm sorry, now I'm disappointed. So there's like, I didn't say there's like, you don't, there's no little pictures of mountains, but you can, you can do the axis of your plane every turn. 
you know, you're playing two dice. Well, you're obliged to do the X if you're playing every turn. You are. But in in uh, in the harder missions, you mm -hmm. know, where you're sliding the thing down, it'll actually tell you where the plane exactly has to be pitched. So oh, my goodness. Like, yeah, so you're actually like sort of deking out mountains, and then you have to get it back I mean, to level. I mean, thematically, that's cool. But the problem, I, I in the last round, you have to be exactly level. You do. And I... <sighs> That seems awfully restrictive. Now there's also fuel. Okay. There's a, there's a gauge on the left-hand side that I believe starts at 20, and it'll go down by six every turn unless you place a die there. And okay. Then, and then it'll only go down, I thought at first, that you just had to waste a die there. No, no, Mark. No, no. <laughs> so I just threw a six there. Uh -huh. well, it went, by, went down by six anyway, because it goes down <laughs> by the value of the dice you put there. And you also have, I think it's called wind shear or something. That your your plane will start at, uh, I think it's plus three speed. I see. And then depending on how far off your axis is, it will start turning on this dial. Interesting. Sure. So it'll go to like plus two, plus one, and then normal, and then start getting to the negatives, which is helpful. I th it'll probably start at different spots for different airports, but I, th I find that part hot helpful because once it finally gets to the negative that's usually when the game's winding down and it'll help you get to those low speeds right in order for you to land because first you want to go fast and then you want to go slow honestly i think it's the thematic integration that really sells sky team because in terms of gameplay i'm pretty sure i would rather play any one of the cooperative dice games by kane Klenko. He's done a bunch of them. Uh, Fuse, for example, was one of them. Fuse is pretty themeless. But he also did the real-time pandemic co-op dice game, which is pretty cute as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but there is something cool about having this little gauge that shows the orientation of your plane, and it slides around, and then there are the, these strips that you slide in. The physicality of the design is evident even from the Board Game Arena module. And I have to imagine that's a non-trivial part of the appeal. Yeah, I'm. I have pre-ordered, and I can't wait to try it. I, I'm very feel it has that. It's going to have that nar for me, where it's just that much better in person than it is on board game arena. Do you yeah. want to hear the the real nightmare part of the harder mission? What's that? Is that some of those blocks not only have the axis have to be the right way, but there are black dice mm -hmm. on them, and if you don't get that down fast enough, you have to roll a black die for every block that's on there, and you add that many planes to the number that you rolled. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, yeah, super awesome. So you're like on this like crazy mission to go super fast at the beginning to try to get that drop down so you're not rolling those dice and adding more planes. Sure. Super fun. Yeah, I don't know. It's it seems so like where where's where's the strategy and communication? How is you're clearly better at this game than I am. You, because when you when you uh get with the harder missions, there uh -huh. are uh special cards that you'll get. You'll get two special cards mm -hmm. and one of them that you can pick is exchange dice. Ah, okay. So there, there is sort of like a little hidden thing. It's like, oh, he's giving me a four. Sure. That probably means he's either, he probably has two of them. So he right. gave me one, so we're going to put them into the axis, and that will be good. Okay. So there's that kind of thing. Okay, so in the base game, is it your opinion that the horizon for, no pun intended, for, for decision-making is just lower? Or is it the case that there are these subtle nuances of communication and, and strategy that I'm missing? Yes. I'm not saying that there's no decision no, making. No, I but... think I think there is. I think in person there'll be a lot more sort of hints, and you'll see if, if you play some more, you'll see how it develops. Because also the order that you put in the dice as well. Sure, it's like oh, could you, could you give me a for instance? Yeah, well, like like I say, you, if someone's thrown in a high number in engines, it's like well, he's off, that's the only 
as in that's his highest die. So I know like I can play something else somewhere else or some things like that. It's like when you see them play a die somewhere, you're like, why would he put that die there if that wasn't his, you know, you know, his highest die type thing. Okay. Well, as I say, I'm kind of curious. It's just, it seems like a fun toy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not saying it's going to be the greatest thing ever. Yeah. But it's, it, it, I think it's going to be really fun to. to just every pull, time, every time you compare it to NAR. Uh, I get nervous because NAR, I think, is, I think we can agree, is a much better it, design. Well, I mean, in zero gameplay I understand. Reasons, okay? I understand. And then you keep talking about how it's going to be better in person. And I just keep thinking that that means you're just going to cheat flagrantly <laughs> in person because you do that in co-op games all the time. In games where there are communication <laughs> restrictions, you cheat all the time. No, never. I never talk. I never give away anything. Let me give you a for instance. I could just imagine you when playing Sky Team, rolling the dice and being like, oh, the round we needed high I numbers. Just, and it's like, Walker, you can't say things like that. That's what I was just doing. Oh, why'd you oh, <laughs> put that there? Why? All right. So I'm curious to see more of what Sky Team has to offer. And Walker clearly is already sold. So that is Sky Team by Luc Raymond, published by Le Scorpion Masqué this year. We also got to play Green Team Wins. And I disagree with that. Green Team doesn't always win, not morally. <laughs> this is designed by Nathan. Whoa, that's a solid truth and reconciliation uh, position here right now. And published by 25th Century Games. Just as a quick recap for those who have not heard of Green Team Wins, it is a game where you ask a bunch of questions, either like a this or that, or multiple choice, or fill in the blank. And... In the very first round of the game, everyone is on orange team. Ooh. And then so everyone writes down. I know, Nobody gross, wants right? to be in that orange Ugh. team. No. It just gives you that weird feeling. It's gross. It's, yeah, gross. it's gross. So everyone writes down the answer to the card that you flip up. There are 15 cards. You flip up the card. Everyone writes down their answers. And then you, everyone turns their answers up. And whatever, the people that have the majority that are the same uh, get to turn to green team. And they get one point. And then you do the same thing. And now if you have the majority again when you're on the green team you will get two points and if you're not in the majority you drop back down to ugh, orange team and just to be clear the vibes that we're sending off with respect to green and orange team are very much in the rules the rules are structured in such a way that it is deliberately unfair and in point of fact although there are some uh there are some cases that are borderline ambiguous most ambiguities are resolved by just repeating like a mantra green team wins so if there's a tie between multiple answers, well, which tie is better representing the green team? That's the right answer. Green team wins. And it's just a, it's a great shorthand for life, really. Now, some of the questions are very interesting, and they provide very, very, very strong reactions. There was one in particular that I recall that people, every once in a while, <laughs> we'd flip up a card and everyone would have strong opinions, but sometimes something would, would flip up and a lot of people would be like, ooh, I don't know. And then somebody would be like, there is one right answer. Writes it down with confidence. <laughs> and this was definitely the case. You were the one who felt very strongly about the oatmeal, as I recall. Yes. Yes. So one of them was, what is what is the best fruit to have on oatmeal? And it was blueberries, bananas, and strawberries. I, and, strawberries. and you very firmly felt that there was a right answer. And I cannot remember what it was. It was well, bananas. Bananas. Okay. <laughs> it's just that you have oatmeal for a certain consistency. Okay. And, and bananas... Some people like textural. Some people like textural contrast. Okay. The only other question that I remember providing very, very, very strong reactions about bananas was what fruit is worst in a fruit salad? That's right. And uh, the answers were melon, blueberry, and banana. And I always answer melon because nobody eats that melon. Uh, but apparently, banana is regarded as gross. Anyway, we've had a number of interesting discussions about inanities like that. 
and other things. Like there was one, uh, my favorite question I think is what is worse to mistakenly think that there's an extra step going upstairs or mistakenly think that there's an extra step going downstairs. And we had a lot of arguments about that one. I I really like a lot of the questions. Now, some of them, I th- uh, the promos, the ones that are explicitly board game themed. This time was wasn't that bad. This time was good. Yes, because it was retail or Kickstarter, and especially recently after our pledge of indifference and going did, over shipping did costs, say crowdfunding. Just to, just to be clear. Oh, you're right. Sorry, crowdfunding. Yeah. It was it was agnostic as to the, yeah. the the crowdfunding platform. Quite right. Quite right. But a lot of them, uh, they're they're very well. That even that question, very inside baseball. Yeah. Not appropriate for people who don't buy a lot of games. And I, f- I feel bad about us not discussing it after, because I feel we all picked retail for different reasons. And Good I, point. I wish we had like talked about what our reasons for that answer were. Well, that, well, I think that goes to show there was no shortage of possible interesting discussions yes. of this section yeah. of Green Team Wins. Huge fan. The table talk alone, both the specific discussions and... The, the the just the rank appeals to popularity and influence are <laughs> very fun. That was Green Team wins. Just a reminder, the retail version that you're going to get at big box stores taps out at six players, but the 25th century game version goes up to twelve. Yeah, the cool version that that, that yeah. Green Team people have. The one that has more Green Team energy, as yeah. opposed to the other version of Green Team Win, which has a little bit of that Orange Team energy. It does. Uh, that is Green Team Wins by Nathan Thornton in 25th Century Games, and that is the better edition to get. You get to play another game of Fairies and Magical Creatures. This is by Glenn Drever at Forbidden Games. After a successful crowdfunding and a pretty quick turnaround being published this year. Walker, what would you think of Fairies and Magical Creatures? I thought it was very interesting, Mark. You, you, I, I, I want to say this. I, I would like to design a game... <laughs> That that you don't actually quite get to do deck building. <laughs> you don't actually quite get to Tetris build on your map. And we're going to end it before anything cool happens. <laughs> and print. What what cool thing might have happened later if the game lasted longer? Oh no no oh no no the the game nothing. Okay <laughs> the game the game the way it is now nothing right because it's it's made to be very quick and and not last long and not give you a chance to do any of that. I don't think the duration is is at fault, though. It's not significantly shorter than Raccoon Tycoon, for example. Same designer, same publisher. The issue isn't that it ends before anything interesting happens. The issue is that nothing interesting happens. You could have doubled the length of you could have doubled the length of of fairies and magical creatures. Still wouldn't have done much. You would have cycled through your deck of uninteresting cards a couple more times. This is what I mean. There's not interesting cards to build a deck with. Yeah, and there's not enough time to build up your map. I was very optimistic. And indeed, structurally, I still quite like the way card play works in Fairy's Magical Creatures. It operates under a relatively standard deck-building premise, except in order to draw cards, you have to take an action. In order to buy cards, you have to take an action. In order to play cards, you have to take an action. So effectively, they're boosters on top of the fundamental action selection and the the way the rest of the game works. Sadly, none of it is interesting. That fundamental structure applied to a more interesting game might have promise. The, the the basic structure of the cards. If the cards were more interesting, and if the rest of the game were more interesting, I think that that novel, it's a relatively novel take on deck building, Might there might be something there, and that's one of the reasons why I was interested. And the awesome part, Mark, that we found, and this is the first time I played yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the awesome part was, <laughs> is that the... We got this wrong the, the first time, The right? round structure yeah. goes counterclockwise. Yes. But everyone choosing and doing things goes the normal clockwise. Yes. Which led to no confusion whatsoever. <laughs> so I get to take my turn, on my turn, I select an action that everyone follows, and it's a very, very uninspired uh, role selection mechanism where I don't really get 
particular traction for choosing the action. Everyone follows the action in a clockwise order. And then I pass the current player marker counterclockwise. This confusion is somewhat reminiscent of Almost Innocent. It was worse than Almost Innocent because everything you're doing, you don't know whether you're turning left or right for, for, for much of anything. That was my recollection for many of the rounds. Fairies and magical creatures, though, we would get confused a solid proportion of the time where we would follow the actions in a counterclockwise order. We would try to have turn pass in a clockwise. It was a whole thing. The other thing I'd just like to mention to pile on, as we have sometimes been justly accused of doing, is that in addition to many of the cards not being particularly interesting, many of the cards have egregious take-that elements. And they're all over the map. Like, a card of the same suit, and even of the same picture and the same name, might read a banal effect such as place a cube somewhere in the area majority box, all the way to place a cube in the area majority box and nuke two other cubes in the area majority box. And there was the card that says swap this card with a random card in an opponent's discard pile. That was near the end of the game, but we were all pretty disgusted at that point. <laughs> I think Huey took the card just so no one would play it. And then just the wording on some of the cards was yes. so, like, is does this affect my next action? Yes. Is this an action in and on itself? I'll do you one better. Who knows? There's no text in the rulebook about ties. Half of the points come from area majority or at least a solid proportion of the points come from area majority. No mention is made to what to do in, in case of scoring ties. This is not what we would call acceptable in a published game. So, in defense of the game, yes, there was one point in the game where the action selection actually mattered. There was, that is true, there once. Was, there was two players that just happened to be without cards, and someone picked the, everyone gets to play a card. So it's those, true. So those two players didn't get the action, and then we resumed... <laughs> then we resumed everyone just more or less getting the same benefit from every action being exactly. selected. That is fairies and magical creatures. On the one hand, I'm very disappointed, especially given Glenn Drover's recent output. But on the other hand, Glenn Drover has been hit or miss for uh, large segments of yeah, his pub publication. The map so. part is fantastic. I really like the, the map part. You're building this garden and you want all the Tetris pieces to be touching the path. And the Tetris pieces just simply get flipped over to be the path. So when you choose them, you... Flip on whatever side you want, path or garden. They I don't know about fantastic. I mean, it's, it's okay. I, I was enjoying it. Okay, good. Yeah, I mean, look, a lot of the elements show promise. Yes. And I think that with uh, an another couple of, of whacks upside the head with the engagement stick, there might be something in Fairies and Magical Creatures that really works. But fundamentally, it just it, it all ends up being this this bland, forgettable experience where mostly number one, there's confusion over the turn order, and number two, every once in a while, a table hits uh, a card hits the table, and everyone's like, "Ooh, that doesn't sound nice." Yeah, with a new deck and some more tiles. Yeah, yeah. that that might be all it needed. I would want their I would want the action selection mechanism to be zhuzhed up a little bit, but I don't know offhand how that might be done. Yeah. That is Fairies and Magical Creatures by Glenn Drover, published by Forbidden Games. We got one of our favorite games back to the table. It is called Aquatica. This is a, a game where you have deck building and and stuff where the cards are actually useful and yes. cool. And we, uh, we, in the past, have called this kind of mechanism hand building. It's the same thing that you do in Concordia, the same thing you do in Lewis and Clark, whereby your entire deck is in your hand. You play a card, it does what it says it does. And then there's a card that gives all your cards back. So it's not quite deck building. It's not quite hand management. So we, we, we call it sometimes hand building. Just so. And what you're doing is you're buying these sort of properties or 
other thin cards and they nicely slide into your little tableau and they're all sort of benefits and you know this card will give you more attack power this one will let you buy cards better this will let you score other cards because once you slide them all the way up you have to start scoring them because you only have slots for five of them and sometimes they have empty spots so you have to you know maneuver some bonuses to get the card past that blank spot and then there's all these sort of goals that you're trying to shoot for first two is a huge advantage yeah i always enjoy aquatica i really like aquatica too the thing that aquatica does that remains uh more or less unique in my gaming collection is that you get to do these combo-tastic turns that are enjoyable and fun and impressive and make you feel smart but don't take very long and on top of that You end up in a situation where executing those combos, there's a goal unto itself in executing the combos. It's not just that you're cashing in a resource. It's that you need to cash in those resources in order to score the the underlying thing to begin with. And so there's this double incentive to get yourself in a position to use these benefits as efficiently as possible. But at the same time, you don't want to burn out. You don't want to be left with no benefits near the end game, as I did, where I stalled considerably because I'm like, hey, I executed all the combos. I don't have any combo benefits left. Okay, I'm as weak as I was in the first turn. That's not good. And Aquatica remains precisely in the way that it leverages those combos. Really, really fascinating. I'm I'm a big fan of Aquatica. This is the first time we've tried it with five players because you can play up to five with the expansion. I am leery most of the time of games that increase the player count by virtue of expansions. So it was a bit of an experiment. I think it worked okay. Yeah, now that you said that, yeah. Well, the downtime was a little bit unfortunate, especially on those turns where you're doing nothing other than refreshing your entire hand, right? If you're just refreshing your entire hand and two or three of the other four players are doing relatively combo-heavy turns... It, I, I'm saying it's acceptable, but I'm saying it's just on the side of acceptable. Yeah. It would not be my preferred configuration. True. The the land cards cycle at, at an amount, and the, the cards that you get to buy to add to your deck also cycle. So you're sort of always watching at what what's happening and what you're going to do on your turn. So it engages you a little bit while it's not your turn. It's true. The, the, and you're right to, to emphasize the cycling. I think the rate at which... Most of the time, there are exceptions, but the rate at which the different characters on offer and the different properties on offer cycle through the game is just at the right pace. It is not the kind of thing where after your turn, you figure, well, everything's going to be different later, so I might as well not care. Uh, but at the same token, you can't be certain that, that it's going to be waiting for you later on. So it, it, it's got a reasonably good balance in that sense. So that is Aquatica, specifically with the Cold Waters expansion. This was designed by Ivan Tazovsky, published by Arcane Wonders. And those are the games we played this week. And now for a brief break while we pay some bills. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we're back. And now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Game trays, we usually sort of scoff. (laughs) Well, when you say it that way, it sounds reasonable. But the the official pronunciation, I think, is game trays. They're putting on a table, Mark. They're putting on a table. I think it looks adorable. I I agree. It's 
So it's basically like a folding table for gamers. I know lots of gamers who have the sort of, everyone's seen those folding tables, the white plastic with black metal legs that folds in half. I've seen those all over the place. And it's kind of like a niche in the market that I'm surprised hasn't been filled here before. But the moment I saw the designs, I'm like, oh, that's kind of clever. Yeah, it's a deluxified folding table. So we'll have a... Why you got to use that word? Like game trays and deluxified (laughs) in the same... Why are you doing this to me? You so, know I have trigger words. So it has a little, it has a, it's, the table is thick enough that it has a well and in the corners there's drink holders and then that's it. No speakers, <laughs> no LED, LED lights. RGB lighting, yeah, yeah. No, you know, robotic self, you know, folding <laughs> or, you know, no, yeah. get your friends to buy it and you now get 15%. You, you can get reasonable accessories, like they do sell, they're, they're selling a line of customized neoprene mats that are designed to fit inside the well. At that point, the portability of the table becomes uh, less ideal, but it still folds up and you can roll up the, the neoprene topper. So there you go. I'll have to look at it again because if it folds, closes, you can put all your neoprene mats inside. Oh. Right? You see what I'm saying? Oh, sure, and then sure. The legs will be on the outside. So yeah, I think that might be the way it goes. Mm. Anyway, game trays table. Z. Z. So Renegade Games has been reprinting some. Uh, older out-of-print games that they want to remain in the market. And they're moving on to some new Hasbro properties that have fallen out of print. One of them is the perennial favorite Troops on a Map game, Nexus Ops. I can't remember if you're a Nexus Ops fan. I am. I don't know if it needs three editions, but here we go. <laughs> you're right. Uh, it's weird. I never. I wanted to like Nexus Ops. It never really did it for me, but that's fine. I, I recognize the appeal, and lots of people really like it. They're also going to be printing Vegas Showdown, which is a very good auction and action game in the classic uh, realm of uh, Princes of the of Florence, but not quite. Uh, Risk 2020, which I understand in your misspent youth you spent a lot of time with. I still have it. Yeah. And I'm wondering if they're going to listen to Like, there's a huge, there's a huge community. Sure. For Risk 2210. Yeah. You know, add-ons, boards, leaders, yeah. extra stuff. So I'm wondering if, if, if they add any of that stuff, that would be interesting. Yeah. And Risk Godstorm, which I wanted to be good, but apparently was not. So who knows if they'll be modifying these games. Or... I had that as well. I didn't mind it either. It was, it was fine. Yeah. At any rate. <laughs> yes. Lastly for me, we asked for it. David Thompson delivers Undaunted 2200 Callisto. Sci-Fi Undaunted. Okay. On the one hand, we did ask for it. We did. On the other hand, I seem to remember the last earnest plea that I delivered to David Thompson and Trevor Benjamin was for them to slow down. We did say that. There, Look, you can have too much of a good thing. I adore all the Undaunted games. We haven't finished Stalingrad, and we've barely played enough of Undaunted Battle of Britain. And I would honestly, I would celebrate it. If Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson were like, you know, Mark, we're going to give you 18 months of no new Undaunted properties. For one thing, I know for a fact that they'll publish three or four brilliant games during that period anyway, let alone more Undaunted games. And I have to say, the one thing that impressed me the most about the announcement was that uh, Roland McDonald, who has done the art for all the previous Undaunted games, which has a very, very characteristic style, and I think very good at rendering these uh, interesting portraits of of soldiers of various ethnic backgrounds and in, in very a lot of personality in a lot of these portraits. And uh, you know what? Dude can draw a mech, too. It wouldn't necessarily be the, the, the thing I would naturally assume. It's like, yeah, you can do a, a very humanizing portrait of uh, you know a sergeant in World War II and also a pretty good mech. 
That's Undaunted 2200. Mr. Benjamin and Mr. Thompson, pump the brakes. Finally, we neglected last time to mention that we have a Patreon. We have a Patreon. If you're interested in supporting us and helping us produce free independent media, you can visit us on patreon.com slash swag. We have lots of things, add free episodes, bonus episodes. We're back to averaging one bonus episode a week. Yeah, Mark does a ton of work. He's got a show called Bloat, a show called Sizzler. We do a bunch of crowdfunding sort of projects. Sorry, that doesn't. That sounds like we're doing crowdfunding. <laughs> we cover a bunch we of cover crowd, a bunch of crowdfunding in our projects. pledge of indifference. Uh, Walker contributes greatly to that as well as well as the video content. And if you pledge at a commissioner over level, you get to boss us around and get some free games. And I, actually, I'll be sending out six new games uh, tomorrow as I go to Upstate New York. So check us out if you're interested in supporting us. And honestly, and I just want to emphasize this: if you don't, that's fine too. Exactly. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. On to our topic this week, which is games for mixed company. Walker, what are the kinds of criteria that you identify for this? What what, what we mean by this, just to, just to specify, and this was something that we flagged when talking about Archeo Society, the kind of game that works really, really well for both the hobbyist gamer, the, the, the deep, hardcore hobby gamer, and the non-hobbyist gamer. I don't say non-gamer because if they're playing a game, they're a gamer. Yeah, this sort of reflects back to the Patreon as well because this came up in the Discord where people are talking about intro games. and As well as the, as well as the guild. Yeah. And so I think it's mostly about if you're trying to introduce a non-gamer, in, he's, someone's shown some interest. I hope it's this way. You haven't bushwhacked this person. <laughs> oh, oh, by the way, we're playing a game tonight. Yeah, don't do that. No. Someone's shown interest repeatedly Mm -hmm. and said, hey, I want to play that. And or in the situation that I find myself more frequently in, you're in, and this is why I use the term mixed company half as a joke. You're at a public or semi-public event and you don't know some of the people that you're sitting down with. And you either get the sense because they volunteered or because of specific things they've said about their past experiences that they may not be as deep into the hobby as you are. So what would be the best games that we would suggest in these certain circumstances? And I realized that, that upon reflecting on this category, because this is, again, something we flagged in the context of Archeo Society, one of the great things about it is that it is so good for these uh, these purposes, is that I think a lot of the old standards for quote-unquote gateway games uh, don't necessarily fit this purpose as well because sometimes for good reason, sometimes for bad reason, I think a lot of experienced hobbyist gamers will turn their nose up at such games. And not that I necessarily want to validate that dismissive attitude, but I think that there are games that don't feel like slash are not regarded as gateway games, but have that same utility. So perhaps you could think of it as stealth gateway games or something of that nature, because there are some games that I think are as approachable in terms of rules load and in terms of structure. And I, I, I want to flag some of those structural elements that I think contribute to games of this ilk that nonetheless can really excite and interest hobbyist gamers in a way that some of the traditionally mentioned gateway games don't. And I think I think the the funnel has opened right up because maybe, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago, it was more of like computer gamers or role players coming to play board games. Now everyone's coming to play board games. So we have some people mm. that have no experience whatsoever with this, these type of things. Sure. Sure. That's a good point. Although it's, it's truly rare 
that's, and again, just to stress that I don't want gamer to become a loaded term, truly seldom is it the case that somebody has no experience with tabletop gaming at all, right? I mean, from Yahtzee to Uno and all manner of other stuff, or maybe they played D&D once or what have you. I mean, we're all, we all have some familiarity with it. I, I, I don't like the idea that unless you've played something that, that reaches someone's criterion of, of being a hobbyist game, that, that means that you, you haven't really played board games. I mean, eh, they're all of a piece want to flatten these kinds of distinctions. All right, so what are some of the things you look for in such designs, Walker? Usually something that is just one mechanism, something that starts very quickly. It's like you upend the box and <laughs> everything almost falls into place. Very short rules. You do not want to lose them. You want to overwhelm them. You want to get right into playing the game. Yes. There are, however, uh, I think some... Uh, some of the games that I really like in this category do a good job of using or showing what I might call like core hobbyist mechanisms. So not necessarily just so that this individual could then be recommended other games that leverage the same kind of thing, but also because again, it's a way of, of maintaining the interest and excitement of your, your more experienced hobbyist gamer. And so I, I'm specifically to mention some specifics. I, I think of it's a wonderful world, which is a very, very approachable game rules wise, but it, it shows uh, both drafting and uh, some surprisingly subtle uh, timing considerations. Should, I would feel as though the number of, of, of unique cards might be a little overwhelming, but yes. Well, but the thing is, is that structurally they're all the same. It's not like you have a whole bunch of... The only for, part... For someone who knows games, yes, they're all very structurally the same. You the only the part that's intimidating about It's a Wonderful World is the end game scoring conditions. That's pretty much it. I've had great success showing It's a Wonderful World to people who have no hobbyist experience whatsoever. I don't know, I don't know what people you're worrying about. Have a little faith, Walker. I, I, okay, I'll just say yes to everything you say from now on. Then. Yeah, yeah, good boy. Okay. Uh... I think they should be light on luck. Really? Just because, like light. I didn't say no luck, but just light. You don't want the person to feel as though they have no decision space. They have, you know, no matter what they do, it doesn't really matter because it's just going to be random anyway. I mean, I'd be more concerned about the the hobbyist gamer than the non-hobbyist gamer in that context. Because those are the kinds of considerations that, that, that frankly, it's more like, uh, you know. Uh, hard, hardcore geeks like us would would pay attention to. I mean, everyone likes rolling dice. Dice are fun, Walker. It's true. Like the one game in particular that I've also had uh, great success with is uh, Winter Circle, which is a horse racing game by Reiner Knizia, where indeed you there's a lot of dice rolling. I mean, Knizia does dice well, and frequently it's the case that there is less luck than you might immediately assume. Like there's a lot of people in our in our hobby that automatically assume that anything with any dice is, is worthless and ought not to be played. Uh, that is not a perception that I share even remotely. Uh, and I, although I share your, your notion that there can be too much, I, I don't know if, I mean, seldom are there purely deterministic games that I think work well in this category. I mean, through the desert might be an exception. I've had, I've had great success playing through the desert with uh, non hobbyists and it's more or less entirely deterministic uh, after the, the initial game has been set up, but Sometimes cooperative games are a good a good bet. You're all sort of on the same team. There's no hard feelings right off the beginning. You're all sort of working towards a single goal, which is another point I have here as well. Make sure the games have a clear goal. 
Yes. Make sure the players know exactly what they need to do. Yes, absolutely. I think that dovetails nicely with your idea that there shouldn't be a profusion of different mechanisms. And this is this is true, I think, even regardless of the overall level of complexity. Like if if sometimes you can have multiple mechanisms, but the game is simpler, but I think that oftentimes we put it through the, the, the filter or the, the lens of a hobbyist gamer that can deal with multiple different things and trade-offs of that nature. I mean, almost every good game, I would argue, involves trade-offs in terms of making choices. But if it's funneled all through a single single lens, I think that can make things a lot easier for, for non-hobbyist gamers. I think a good example of uh, a co-op game, uh, although, again, you may disagree with me, you may think it's, it's, it's too complicated that's great for both hobbyists and non-hobbyists is the crew. Because a lot of people are familiar with the fundamental structures of trick-taking, and even if they're not, once they get over that hurdle, then it's a it's a great yeah, no, outlet for others. I, I agree, especially with that part, because if you teach them trick taking, yeah. then you have a much bigger catalog that you can reach into. I'm a little bit concerned, though, at the number of people I've heard that have expressed disdain for for tri- for uh, cooperative games in general. I mean, I understand. I, I keep encountering people who are like, "Yeah, I just don't really like co-ops," and the reasons they give tend to vary. Some of them well, sound like they don't want to come right out and say it. It's, I want to win. <laughs> that is sometimes in my more cynical moments, my suspicion, but I didn't want to just come out and yeah, say yeah, it. I know. That's why I, I took the bullet for you. <laughs> Thanks, Walker. I appreciate it. Trivia games are very good. One in particular, Wits and Wagers is a fantastic introduction game because you don't even need to know the trivia. You just need to have faith in someone that knows the trivia. You have to look in their eye and and see the confidence in the answers they give, and then you get to bet on their answers instead of yours. I, I do not like Wits and Wagers. <laughs> and I fear that Wits and Wagers falls into that category of it's sufficiently mass market, it's sufficiently billed as as you know a standard intro game. I think I think it might fall into that category of more and more hobbyist gamers not really feeling now. I just may be projecting based on my own lack of enthusiasm for it. But it also falls into a, uh, another serious problem I think that the hobby has, and this is something that I think game planners and game suggestions need to take into account, even though it's illegitimate. People look down on party games. People, some people have a dismissive attitudes towards all party games. And the goal that I have when trying to craft a, a, a list like this of, you know, games that they can truly bring in the hobbyist and the non-hobbyist together is uh, ones that avoid some of these perhaps unjustified stereotypes that cause hobbyist gamers to think that they're slumming it for the sake of somebody else, right? When everyone's playing a game of... Generally speaking, in my experience, if it's something like Winter Circle, something like Through the Desert, something like It's a Wonderful World, even though you think it might be too complicated, uh, you know, the hobbyists think that they're just playing a game, and the non-hobbyists think they're just playing a game, as opposed to sometimes if you pull out a co-op, sometimes if you pull out a party game, mm, I'm not, again, I'm not validating these prejudices, I'm really pointing them out. Now, there's some games that you, that I, there's some party games that I feel are distinctly designed to be played with a group that knows each other. Yes. These are the type of games that you do not probably want to introduce. So I'm specifically talking about Green Team Wins and Fun Facts. Yes. So these are games that sort of rely on you knowing what the other people are going to guess or, or, you know, things that you've done together or a history. Yes. And, and, and I just don't think they work out that well. I'm also nervous about a lot of party games that require performance. Like people talk about times up slash celebrities slash whatever, and yeah, I've got, I've got nothing against those. And indeed, uh, in addition to the fact that some people would think, oh, you know, it's just a party game, 
But I, I'm always nervous about, to people that I don't know, suggesting a game where there's lots of performance involved. Yeah, I haven't seen a game of Happy Salmon, but I've heard about Happy Salmon. Happy Salmon. Yeah, it is it is a party game with lots of lots of performance, as I you see. say. Okay. I've never read the rule. I just like sort of heard people talking about it. There's like clapping and, and, and I think getting up and running. Anyway, hmm. yes. Much performance in Happy Salmon. Uh, by the same token, much as I love them, I don't recommend social deduction games uh, to mixed company anymore, as as a general rule, especially since the dominant one locally is Secret Hitler, sadly. Uh, there is, however, one negotiation game that I do think can fit the bill, and that is Corporate America. I can't remember if you've ever played Corporate America. I don't think I've ever suggested it to you just because I know how, how little you enjoy negotiation games. It is sufficiently structured, and it is sufficiently staggered such that, number one, it is clear what you're negotiating over, and number two, it's not as though there's a significant first-mover advantage like there would be in a lot of the other cube pushers and, and negotiation games that you don't like. On top of that, it's just brilliant satire. I was rereading rules the other day, and I had forgotten the fact that in case of a tie what in, a, in an election, what you do is you throw it to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, in the rulebook, it specifies as anyone not playing the game. Nice. <laughs> It says that children make excellent Supreme Court, and I, I think that's absolutely true. And I, I would suggest Corporate America to a mixed, mixed uh, group in Canada. In the U.S., no. Oh, yeah, that would probably be a mistake. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. Because I, I, I just I just couldn't know for certain. Someone might get offended by some ele- elements yeah. of, of the, the political satire, and, and, you know, it's a downer. I meant to bring this up. Like The games I was talking about with the green team wins and the fun facts is Wavelength. It's been so many years since I've got to play it. I've sort of forgotten. I know it has. Yeah, Wavelength might be tricky. Because it does feed into the next thing I'm I'm going to add is a game with a gimmick. <laughs> really pulls the table together, which, you know, Wavelength has. Things like Santorini that look just look fantastic. And, oh, yeah. And very easy yeah. to play, right? It's, you know, build a building, move your guy, get to the top of the building. Yes. Nice, simple Looks fantastic. Brings people around to look. Junk junk art, I also put in this. Maybe, you know, dexterity games are very sort of divisive. But, yeah, they but, are. But, uh, you know, you can always... It's Junk art is something you can game master, right? Because there there are X number of mini games. And then you could just say, yeah, and that's our third mini game and we're done. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, okay, so junk art is, is, is an interesting case. I, I adore junk art. It's great. It fulfills many of the same purposes and many of the same utilities as this category of game. I've been thinking about it more, though. And number one, there's a substantial proportion of the population that doesn't enjoy dexterity games. Number two, there's a substantial proportion of the population that doesn't enjoy dexterity games specifically for reasons of accessibility. And I wonder, in all sincerity, this is just an open question, have I alienated people with mild palsies, with mild mobility issues, because of my constant talking about dexterity games in 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 person context or even in the context of this of this podcast if so that's that's been completely unintentional and I've been trying to reevaluate that and on top of that some of my favorite levels in junk art are real time levels and real time dexterity we start getting to a very narrow niche because a lot of people really hate real time games i think that one of the things that you really want for games of the silk is an absence of stress is, uh, you know, the, the decisions can be pointed, but not necessarily an internalized agony. Like, for example... So Jenga Maker right Jenga out. Maker right out. Uh, for Science, brilliant game, right out. Uh, uh, pack of 
Paku Paku right out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you brought up this 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 topic, I thought for sure this was just an excuse to talk about Paku Paku. No, more. it's actually part of this is because I've been thinking about how a lot of these games that I adore and will suggest in many different contexts are maybe not as well suited for a lot of other. Con- so, for example, we don't spend a lot of time gaming with people who look down their nose at party deck games or dexterity games. We're very blessed in that most of even the hardcore hobbyists that we know are more than happy to, to recognize that this is fundamentally a toy-driven hobby and that let's play with a new toy. That's great. There are lots of people who are not similarly blessed, and there are people that we know, and I've been thinking about them, that I never play games with in part because I tend to emphasize on public events the ones that lean towards this. Your dungeon scrawlers, your Paku Pakus, your things like that. And maybe that's okay, but for people who are obliged to think about different setups... You know, I'm thinking things more like Winter Circle Through the Desert, Whale Riders, It's a Wonderful World, Planet Unknown, Archeo Society, stuff like that. A little less toyetic, a little less, uh, a, a little less sort of a party atmosphere, but you can have a lot of fun even without a party atmosphere, is, is basically what I'm getting to. Anyway, one of the things, though, that I think, uh, you know, Archeo, I think there's a reason why Ethno slash Archeo Society was one of the first games that we thought of in this paradigm is because, as you said, there's, there's, well, there's kind of two mechanisms, really. There's the area majority slash the the the, the set building, uh, and then there's the scoring in terms of of the the tableau in front of you. But you have very simple turn options. I think this is one of the keys. You can't be like player exactly player draw. It can't be like well you do this and then you do one of the following two things. Eh, that's already starting to push it. Ethnos is really little to no downtime and flexible player count. Right. You know, you're setting up and you've got four people around you. A couple of other people show up and say, hey, can I join? The best answer is always yes. And not all of the games that I think of this, but, you know, games like Planet Unknown, uh, Through the Desert Whale Riders, those are relatively high. You know, they go to five or six. Uh, It's a Wonderful World goes all the way up to seven, which is great. Uh, You know, so there are lots of really good four-player games. I'm thinking of things like uh, Quest for Alvarado, Iwari, stuff like that. Yeah, I would I would happily introduce uh, games like that to to to, to unknowns. I might have to walk them through it, but yeah. I've, I've had success. It's a bit it's a bit on the heavier end. Things like Quest for Eldorado and Awari are definitely on the heavier end, but uh, I've had success. What can I, I say? I have push your luck. I think is a good mechanism. Ooh, as well. yeah. So I have Martian Dice and Can't Stop as two examples of push your luck games yes. that always work very well. I love Martian Dice. Which uh, that's the one with the cows, right? Yes, cows, <laughs> chickens, and humans. <laughs> you have Martians and tanks. So you roll the dice, and you have to have as many tanks as there are Martians, and then it's like sort of set collections. You need to have – you collect your chickens, and then you're you – know, well, you don't have to get them in a certain order, but you right. have to have chickens, cows, and, and then you stop and you score. It's very good. And th- this is not a criticism of either can't stop or Martian dice, but these do not run afoul of your not-too-much-luck criterion. No, because they don't last long enough. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. And then rolling rights, some of them are pretty straightforward enough that, you know, you're picking a dice, you're filling yeah. your little pad. Yeah, it's weird, though. I feel the longer you talk about different scoring conditions, the, the quicker you might lose people. But some some rolling rights, maybe. I, I have a question for you, though. Are there games with direct conflict that you think might work in this category? Well, I, I do. I have some right here that are left here. Survive. Uh-huh. 
I've only played Survive oh, a couple yeah, of times. Yeah, yeah. Survive is a really good type of game for that. It's you're right. Like, you know, you're attacking people. Yes. It's fun and it's very, you know, one of those things like a gimmicky type thing. Yep. And, and you know, it's got it's got lots of visual appeal. Island. It's got a tactile appeal. Uh, and it's very knives out, but it nonetheless uh, manages to be somehow non-threatening, which I think is a very good combination. Um, yeah, no, that, I think that's an excellent suggestion. The only the only ones that I could come up with, I don't think are quite simple enough for the category that I'm thinking of. I, they're, they're kind of on the cusp. They're a little bit too complicated. And the, the, the couple that I came up with are Scythe and Quantum. They're just a couple steps past. Quantum, not because of the core rules, but just because in order to play Quantum competently... Uh, you have to start triggering a whole bunch of different special yeah. abilities from ships. And if you have to give somebody a reference sheet to summarize the six different special abilities, I think that's too far. Yeah, I only have two other games here. Telestrations, always loved it. And Splendor. I think drawing is like de- like the dexterity lim- limitation, but like on steroids. Yeah, but it's, that's part of the game is how badly people draw, right? That's that's what is you know leads to the story. It's like it's, it's what you want in these games is the memorable moments, right? Where but, you flip up the page and everyone looks at at what you had to look at. Yeah, and, and and this is this is the picture I got. I had I had to guess what this was. Let me ask a sincere question. I said spaghetti massacre, <laughs> and that's where our word deviated. I, let, let me ask. Let me ask a sincere question. I completely believe that in almost every one of our even passing acquaintance, something like that is uh, is great times. But what are the odds that for the wrong person, who is either very self-conscious about how they draw for whatever reason, uh, could end up with a very bad experience and just react very badly to that kind of environment where everyone's expected to be like, look how terrible we are all at this thing. Uh, let us all laugh at how bad we draw. I don't know. Unless I really like, don't know. Unless you like get a bad group, like you went to like the artists guild and they all, <laughs> they all like drew immaculately and you were the one person because there's going to be at least in a group of five, there's uh-huh. at least three people <laughs> who are terrible. Sure. I will be one of them. Well, let me. T- I I I don't like telestrations because it is not that out of some sort of competitive uh, endeavor. I hate drawing. I loathe it. I have no desire to attempt to represent anything through picture. Part of that is no doubt informed by how bad I think I am at it. But I don't think that exhausts it. There are lots of things that I do really badly that I enjoy. Uh, drawing is not one of them. And if I were in a group of people that I didn't know. And uh, the only available offering was Telestration or someone suggested Telestrations and there were like two or three enthusiastic seconders. And I felt that that was what was going to happen. I don't know how I'd react, frankly. And I'm experienced in the hobby and I'm, so, and, and I'm confident enough to know that there are groups that, that I fit into nicely. But if I, if, I, if I were not experienced in the hobby and I just walked in out of nowhere, I don't know how I'd react. I'm, I'm sincerely wondering here. I'm not, I'm not saying that it's a bad call. I just don't know. I've been trying to evaluate my blind spots in terms of dexterity games in particular. And I don't know if drawing games are, are under the same context. Very much in the same way that you've made me reevaluate some of my, my thoughts about negotiation games. For what it's worth. True. And what do you think about Splendor? I try not to think of Splendor. Gotcha. Spl- no, Splendor, I think, is, is is a great example of the category. Lots of hobbyists like Splendor. Splendor is uh, is a good bootstrapper for things like set collection, uh, and it's very, very approachable. And it's got a lovely tactile uh, uh, element with the heavy chips. When we were talking about Telestrations, it made me think of another game 
that I played the same day that I played Telestrations because it was a great game of Telestrations. And then we played a game called Monikers. But I'm wondering if that would fall into the same sort of, you know, green team and, and fun facts where it works better with with a group that plays together. Yeah, Mon- Monikers is the commercial version of uh, Celebrity. Uh, and I love everything that that company does, honestly. Uh, they've given us lots of review copies and I, I thoroughly enjoy, I mean, the most recent, uh, you know, they did wavelength and they've done, uh, fuzzies. They did lacuna, for example, fabulous group of games. And I would happily play monikers, but again, you're expected to perform yes. and 90, I, I want, I wonder if I'm just being unusually sensitive to perhaps what might only occur 1% of the time. If you know anything about the people involved, even after like five minutes of conversation, I'm sure it'll be fine. And most people have the necessary judgment. I I just don't know how many people get alienated, how many people have been driven out, how many people have left with bad feelings because of certain kinds of party games and certain kinds of dexterity games. I genuinely don't know. Yeah, it was that million dollar script? That was yeah. That was yeah. Great. Then there are ones that really require yes. performance, uh, like actual role playing, and that can be very stressful. Yes. Yeah. yeah like I wouldn't. Like I love Durant. Durant, I think, is a brilliant game. It's a you know the game masterless tabletop yeah. role. I would never. Suggest Durant's to to a bunch of randos. It's like, yeah. hey, let's all let's all let let's all do a role playing game about power, compromise, and prison. Yeah, like, mm. <laughs> death. Yeah, I think this was a very interesting discussion, Walker. Thank you for your your thoughts, and yes. uh, I always appreciate it when we come at a topic from uh, we we agree with the parameters, but we end up at very different positions. I hope it is illuminating. And that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. Sowronggames.com should be your homepage. It's my homepage. And just as a note, by the way, for listeners at home, it is appropriate to applaud. We will not be offended. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.